You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee Church, visit vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's this week's message. So who did you lose this year? Who did you lose this year? I'm not, I'm not talking about to COVID or from death or illness. I'm talking about politics. Who did you lose to politics? Was it over mask or not to mask? Was it the election? Was it conspiracy theories? Was it Black Lives Matter? Who did you lose? Friends, coworkers, neighbors, college roommates, aunts, uncles, parents, siblings. Who did you lose this year? Who did you lose that when, when you see, you know you feel this tension uh, that's sort of in the room when you walk in, you can, you can feel it. Who, who's left the church because of either we, we said too much or we said too little or we leaned a certain way? Uh, sociologists say that we are more divided now than during the Civil War. They actually have data to prove that now. And the motto of the United States is e pluribus unum, which out of many is one, right? Well, we could use a little bit more unum, I think, than, than pluribus right now, right? Um, 60% of voters believe members of the other party are a threat. 40% of those would call the other side evil. 20% would call the other side animals. One in three people that identify as Republican or Democrat would believe that violence would be justified to further their cause. Loathing motivates voters more than loyalty does. We have become polarized. We have become narcissism of our similarities. We not only don't know our neighbors, we don't know people who aren't like us. We no longer know people who don't vote like us, who think like us, speak like us, live like us, dress like us, on and on and on. Historians are predicting that when we're all long gone, that they won't talk about the politics and the polarization that we're in right now, but, but they will talk about this movement into a digital world with a new economy and a social dis- decay and disruption. We're becoming more isolated, more lonely. I shared a few weeks ago that um, the average person in America has zero to one confidant in their sort of circle. Zero to one. We are a lonely and social media is our heroine. We create our own sort of tribe. And then that we talked a little bit a couple weeks ago too that there is a healthy version of, uh, a t- of, of a tribe, and then there's a toxic version of tribalism. Part of tribalism is to identify people that are not in our tribe. If they're not in our tribe, they are your enemy, and this would be the toxic type. Now, when you identify your enemy, it actually serves a sort of psychological purpose. Uh, psychologists write about a few different uh, reasons. One is that is the enemies, they give us someone to blame so that we don't have to face our own reality or take responsibility for our own life, our own mistakes. It gives us a bizarre sense of control 
in the fact that uh, in the face of evil and suffering, the idea is what is the problem? Well, they are the problem. And you can fill in the blank for who your they is. There's a clinical study where they put people into groups. They had them think about an enemy. They had them draw the enemy on a piece of paper, like an ISIS terrorist or like someone from the opposite political party that you are. Then report their emotional sense of well-being back. After the people reported when they had thought about their enemy and drawn it out, they had the feeling that the world was less dangerous and less disordered because no evil, they, because now their sort of evil has a shape and has a place. You feel like, okay, it's under control. I'm okay. And of course, for lonely people, we said a few weeks ago, like enemies give us a tribe to belong to. Anti-community or anti-tribes is toxic. And I'm, and, and I'm a, I'm a, it's a piece of a, of a group I'm against. It's, it's, I hate this group. They are my enemy, and it feels better to be part of an anti-group than no community at all. It's better to, to scream at people online and feel like you're part of a digital mob than it is to just be in your apartment scared and alone. Politicians, journalism, journalists, and tech companies are all making billions of dollars one click at a time to harness our fears, and our loneliness. I'm not saying that all those things are bad, um, but many are taking advantage of our loneliness and our fear, and it is creating a social decay and disruption. Now, tribalism is a human condition due to the fall, and into the world of tribalism comes Jesus, who literally died to bring enemies into his family a place at his table. When you sit down at a table with people who don't look like you, don't think like you, aren't like you, and follow Jesus together, Jesus is Lord. There's a new kingdom and a new family. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers in his famous talk in the Beatitudes. In James chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, it says this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. So what's the difference? A peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is not good. When injustice is the norm, not justice, a peacemaker's job is to make peace. The implication here is no peace. It is to bring two enemies together at a table, to create an open space for listening, to love and repentance and reconciliation, and to turn enemies into family. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Look, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through seven, it says this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclined with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Sinners, by the way, just a quick little thing, little, little code. When they say sinners in the Bible, it usually means sex workers. So he's hanging out with tax collectors and sex workers. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, a little context here. Break down a bit. Levi, who later becomes Matthew, right? Changes the name Matthew. Jesus, when he meets Jesus, a lot, of, a lot of the people that Jesus met, they wound up changing their name when they started following him. So Levi's Matthew, wrote the book of Matthew in the gospel. He was also a tax farmer or a tax collector, okay? Tax farmer was um, someone who would basically collect the taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. So he kind of worked for the Romans. Now, at this time, it was a political tinderbox, like super, super tense. The Jews were under oppression from the Romans, and it, it was literally like they could barely make it. Like financially, they were barely surviving. Romans were t literally taxing the Jews up to like 80% of their take. So, but tax collectors or tax farmers, they were, they were living large. And see, what they would do is they would make their money off a fee that they would charge in addition to the taxes. And the Jews could do nothing about it. So, for example, maybe they, they were being taxed 80%. That meant that the tax farmer would add 10% to that tax. So now they're taking 90% of the take. And the Jews couldn't do anything about it because they had the Roman guards with them. And they had the power behind it. And so these tax farmers were hated among the Jews. They were literally keeping their people poor and impoverished. And, and there was nothing they could do. You can imagine the hate that was generated. Like the tax farmer had to be at the very bottom of the social ladder right next to the sex workers. And here is Jesus eating with tax farmers and sex workers, bringing them into a new possibility, a new future, a new family, a new reality. Now, we read this story and we think, yeah, that's... That's cool. That's a great story, right? Put on your Sunday school hat, and you're like, yeah, Jesus is going, you know. But these were people who were considered deplorable. So who, who are your deplorables? Who are the people in your city, in this country, that are the scum? What are their types? Is it their smell? Is it their skin color? Is it the way that they talk? Is it their economic status, their job type, their sexual orientation, the way that they dress, their politics, their mask? Who is your they? You see, this is not just a cute, cool story in the Bible. This was offensive. Now, meals had a high value in the society, and they do now, but meals bring us together but they also uh, separate us. 
Think, think like pre-civil like rights era. Restaurants had signs, no blacks allowed, you know. Even, even in, our, in our own city now, we sort of segregate by restaurants, right? You, you have those that can, are in neighborhoods that, that, are, are, you know, that aren't in other neighborhoods. You have, you have restaurants that are too expensive for the poor to enter in. We, we, we separate socioeconomically. The community table where you eat with strangers... Who, like, when you go in and you, like, have this one table and you got to sit with other people, who does that? People don't want to do that. They separate. I want my own table. I don't want to have to sit there at the public market and eat with people I don't know, strangers. Some people are like, no, I'm not doing that, right? Um, well, in first century Judaism, a rabbi would never eat, never eat with someone like Levi. But to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, kinship, and forgiveness. Jesus got himself killed because of who he ate dinner with. And he didn't even own a home. In Mark 3, verses 13 through 19, it says this. And he went out on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, who he also named apostles. So, there was a lot of people following Jesus. There was a lot of people. But he called in the 12. Um, these were sort of his group of, of disciples that were going. he was going to give a mission to. So he calls them in so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, I always butcher this, I'm going to say it wrong again, Bonidris. Uh, that is son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So a little bit more context. A zealot. Where a, first, a zealot is when, uh, in first century Judaism, a very violent insurgents group that is the far right. They were sort of like Jewish nationalists. They were known as the dagger men. They would often infiltrate a crowd, like secretly, and they would basically take these daggers out, and they'd sort of find some, uh, either a Roman or a Roman soldier or a Roman supporter like Levi, and basically slit their throat in the crowd and then disappear. They were, they were domestic terrorists of the day, right? Dagger men. And both Matthew the tax farmer, and Simon the zealot sit at Jesus' table. You can imagine the stares. You can imagine that they actually had some words when no one was watching. This isn't, this isn't Milwaukee versus Chicago kind of rival, right? This isn't even Proud Boys and Antifa. This is like Al-Qaeda terrorists and Navy SEAL, both who lost people. Violence was assumed between these two groups. And here they sit at Jesus' table and become founding apostles. What happened to their politics? We don't know. We don't know what happened to their political views and all of this. All we know is two former enemies one with a very violent history, became brothers in the family of God. 
following a nonviolent, loving, compassionate, suffering way of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does. He's a peacemaker. He turns enemies into guests at his table, and then he turns guests into family. Do you know he's still doing it today? He's still doing it today. He turns guests into, tam- into family, and he does that through the church. He does that through the church, inviting, turning enemies to guests and guests into families. Do you know what the primary call is yet as an apprentice of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus? Have you figured it out? It, it's, it's not to elect your candidate or to get your enemy canceled in the culture wars. Okay, That's not your call as a follower of Jesus. Your primary call is to open your home, to set a table, to make peace, to turn enemies into family. Peacemaking in a culture of political polarization is called hospitality. It is the love of a stranger. It's the creation of a free space where a stranger can enter in, where one becomes a friend instead of an enemy, turns a stranger into a neighbor and a neighbor into family. It is an expression of welcome. And as a follower of Jesus, as an apprentice of Jesus, we are actually commanded to continue what Jesus started. In Romans 12, verse 13, it says this, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's a command. Practice hospitality. We don't need to start with a new big program for our church, right? We don't need to, st- we, we don't need to start something big We need to start with a home. Many of you know this, but this church started in a home. Um, It it started not that long ago in a small wood-paneled Milwaukee basement bar that happened to be our apartment. And, and, And some of you who lived through that basement are still with us. Thank you, Lord. Um, But people still talk about our basement, the basement days, right? A home doesn't require cool furniture or a large floor plan. It can have hand-me-downs. You can pick up your furniture on the curb. A home does not require that. A real home is where there is love, where there is welcome, where there is peace. So simple that it's easy to miss the power in this. Our nation is falling apart at some level. And while politics does play a crucial role in the overall scheme of things, I don't personally think that the politics is a solution to our deepest problems, nor do I think that the solution is some massive nationwide thing. I think it's small. I think it's small. It's rebuilding the social trust that we've lost as a generation. One meal at a time one glass at a time, one conversation at a time, one apology at a time, one hug at a time, one welcome at a time. Andre Tecme, during World War II, he was a pastor in France, and he defied the Nazis and took in thousands of Jews uh, from all over Europe. His church was like in this little tiny Protestant village in France. And he called his church, and this is the quote, this is what he said to his church, Work and look hard for ways, for opportunities to make little moves against destructiveness. 
Isn't that great? There's so much being destroyed right now across the world. We can't fix these, these problems. We can't. They're too big. We can't, we can't end social media. We can't. But we can make little moves. We can make little moves. Hospitality is a little move. Going on a walk with a neighbor is a little move. Calling someone just to check in. How you doing? It's a little move. Starting an MKE circle is a little move. Uh, the weather is turning. Our, our patios are starting to open up a little bit, right? The backyards are, are starting to smell like people are grilling. Invite some folks over to your backyard. A little move. And I know, how, how do you talk about hospitality in a pandemic? I know that things are, are not back to normal. I, I know that we still need to take precautions. And it, but it seems like there is, a, there is a light coming at the end of the tunnel. I mean, hey, we're getting together next week. It's a big deal, right? Um, I also know that we are a smart, creative people. Uh, we can be a community that makes little moves. I want to encourage you to work and look hard for ways for opportunities to make little moves against destructiveness. Can we as a church, can we, can we make little moves? Can, can we make some phone calls? Call some folks up this week. Real, real practical. Call some folks up. How are you doing? How, how can I pray for you? What's going on? Call someone to go for a walk. Find a neighbor who may be different than you. You haven't seen in a while. Maybe you lost them this year. See if they'll go for a walk with you. Invite someone to a table. doesn't even have to be your table. Jesus owned no home, but he was the host everywhere he went. Right? Get together. Invite someone to a table. Turn an enemy into a guest and a guest into family. Find ways to practice hospitality. We want to be a church that is in Christ with community for the city, a church that makes small moves of hospitality in a culture of political polarization. Make small moves. Let's go be the church.